Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. You can't just kind of pick a general field that you want to make a difference in. It's got to be, you know, what are you passionate about? And from there, what's the difference I can make within that subject? Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. I am Mike Veldhuis, business owner of the Dutch IT company Nalta and podcaster from the Netherlands. I just love the Women in Tech podcast by the talented Esprit Devora. It's made with passion and creativity. It gives insight into the world of inspirational women from all around the globe. But most of all, it's fun to listen to. Esprit Devora truly is the girl who gets it done. To connect and collaborate with extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. So I've been podcasting now since 2013. That's when I first started producing my first podcast. Then it aired in 2014. And it is crazy. Like, it's crazy how popular podcasting has become and and how so many people are looking at, like, podcasts, like the new blog. And it makes me think a lot about consistency because I've been consistent with the podcast for that long and you know that's like what uh eight eight years ish seven to eight years and that's a really long time to be consistent and i think consistency is the truest form of success it's the one that most people don't talk about however i think that in addition to consistency is understanding the ecosystems of our business meaning understanding like what are all the different pieces so they could all move together in flow because if we're only being consistent but we're not doing all the pieces that are needed to make the whole car run if we're only taking care of fixing one specific area of the car then the car can't drive right and so i think if i had to go back in time and give myself advice i would would say, hey, take a moment, write down all the processes, make sure you have all, all the things down from how you're going to distribute the episodes, how you're going to market the episodes, how you're going to connect with your guests, how you're going to connect with the audience and all the different things outlined out. Um, so they're very fluid and you understand like what the return is and what success looks like month after month. And then um, stay consistent and then everything will work out. And so 
I think consistency is the foundation of success. And then I think on top of that, it's, it's processes and making sure everything's working in the right direction so that the car can drive. Speaking of car, I'm driving home right now. So that's the, that's the sounds that you hear. All right, enjoy the next episode. the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women in tech around the world. So excited for our next guest, Liza, coming at us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Liza. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. It's so great to be here. So excited to have you. So go ahead to kick things off. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, So I am a first year, rising second year student at Stanford University out in California. But as kind of my second job, I work as a research scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center just north of Washington, D.C. So I started my work at NASA at age 14, and I've continued working with my team there for the past five years or so now. And what about tech really inspired you? When was that first moment that you're like, this is a world I want to be a part of? So I had never really heard of a satellite before I came to NASA at all. My single, you know, understanding of what remote sensing or satellites were was just, you know, objects spinning around in space. Um, But once I got to NASA, I was introduced to satellites as a means of really understanding how our Earth was changing from a bird's eye view. I found environmental science was all about, you know, taking pictures of trees and measuring different ecosystems. But as it turns out, we can actually get all of that information and more from space. So I got really excited about space technology as uh, kind of a more efficient and and more world-spanning means of getting that information. Okay, so you're back in D.C. from Stanford. What are your next steps? Like, where do you want to go from here? What's your vision? What's your dream? So right now, I'm really excited about some travel I have coming up to a bunch of different cities in Europe. I'm running this program right now called Cloud to Classroom that seeks to bring satellite imagery analysis, just like uh, the kind I do at NASA, to K-12 through schools around the world. And so we hope that we can use satellite imagery as a means of helping students better understand things like deforestation and ice melt and sea level rise. Um, So at all these different cities that I'm visiting over the summer, we're doing trainings with both students and teachers to help them better incorporate these technologies into biology and and earth science curriculums. So right now I'm really excited about that. I mean, I love your smile when you're talking about it. Where can we find out more? We'll include it in the show notes. Sure. Um, so Cloud to Classroom's website is just www.cloudtoclassroom.org. Cloudtoclassroom.org. I love it. And you also mentioned this is your first podcast that you've been on, which I'm just super related about. I think that's so exciting. You're traveling mm-hmm. everywhere. Is this your first time traveling too? Where's that part of your journey? So I'm really lucky to have had the opportunity through NASA to give talks really all over the world. I think some of my favorite talks have probably been in Singapore and also Dublin over the last couple of years. This is definitely my first time doing such extensive, you know, weeks and weeks of travel, even without my parents. Um, And so very excited about that. Again, I'm, I'm very lucky through NASA to have had that opportunity before. Talk about a bit about your speaking opportunities. There's so many people listening right now. They're anywhere from like, let's say even 15 to like maybe even their mid 20s to 30s. They're like, wait, I wish that I could speak around the world. Like, how did she do that? So how did you do that? First, how did you attract the opportunity? But even more importantly, how did you develop the confidence to get on stage and deliver? Because that's extremely scary. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I first developed the opportunity through just the science that I had done at NASA. So when I first stepped into NASA when I was 14, I had this kind of crazy goal of creating this global scale, you know, real-time uh, mangrove ecosystem monitoring initiative. And so I spent the last couple of years kind of building that up. It's like a lot of coding, a lot of learning how to use satellites and, and remote sensing. And because of that research, um, my mentors at NASA really pushed me to get it out to the world and start speaking at scientific conferences. You know, in the science world, you kind of disseminate your information in two means. Um, the first is through papers, through scientific journals, and the second is through conferences. So conferences were huge for me to really feel like my research had value and that I had something to say even in this world of, of grown-up scientists as, as a high schooler. In terms of developing the confidence to be able to speak in these environments, for me, having a network of people and a team of people who really saw me for my work and not for my age or my qualifications was so critical. So I think surrounding yourself by people who lift you up and, and don't care about all of those things really can help you feel like you know your research has worth and what you have to say in these kinds of high-stress environments is still is still worth it. Do you ever experience imposter syndrome? I do. I still experience imposter syndrome really every day. I think um, I've definitely come a long way from the 14-year-old walking into NASA um, just because I've been able to recognize the work that I've been able to do. Um, and I've gotten validation from those around me again. But, you know, it's hard. It's always hard as a woman in science um, walking into these rooms. I usually do kind of a mental head count, how many women, how many men um, in the room when I walk into these meetings. And it's intimidating. I think also once you have role models too in the field who are women and who do these things and who step up in front of all of these men and, and you know, talk about their research, it becomes easier and easier to feel like you have a place to do that too. Just to put myself out there, like I experience imposter syndrome every day as well. At least for me, it's yet to go away. So I don't know. It might be fun to interview someone who was like, yeah, I used to have imposter syndrome, but no more. Like, it's definitely not my story. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's hard. I, I don't think you'll find many people whose imposter syndrome has gone away. Even, you know, you see interviews from some of the most high profile um, women in particular in the world and some men too, who still feel that way. Um, and I think it's the combination of having humility but you need that confidence as well. 100%. You're so cool. What would you say is one huge obstacle? We've talked a lot about your wins, but what's one huge obstacle you've successfully overcome and how did you overcome it? So a really big focus in the scientific community is just kind of starting and doing analysis just for the sake of publication. There's this mindset called the publish or perish mindset, where the goal is just, you know, publish as many papers as you can, um, just kind of get your work out there, um, see your metrics on things like Google Scholar go up. And really from the beginning, I wanted to challenge myself to kind of defy that mindset and see, you know, what potential applications can my research have outside of the world of publication. And so it was kind of um, challenging that narrative for myself. And then being in front of other people who haven't really thought about challenging that narrative has definitely been uh, an obstacle for me. And it's also difficult too, as I think about climbing in my own career, you know, how do you do that if you don't just want to publish papers all the time? It's a big question. And it's one that I think the whole scientific community is still kind of grappling with, but I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. I think showing your work and remembering you don't have to be perfect along the way. There's this great book show. Yeah, it's called show your work, but it's so important to share your work throughout your journey, even though we all feel like we're not perfect or we don't know enough. 
someone out there and a group of people are always a little bit not in the place that you're in yet. I mean, even if you're an intern, someone is an inspiring intern, right? Aspiring intern. So I think, you know, what you're saying about publishing every day, it just reminded me the more often we share our work and share our journey, the more we're empowering other people to empower us. Yeah, I think, you know, getting over that hurdle that we place on ourselves in terms of, you know, being scared to put our work out there, being scared to give talks, being scared to even publish papers. um, That's a big thing to get over, especially when you're starting out in a field and you feel like you don't know anything compared to the people around you. What you have to realize is, you know, everything that you contribute to the field is, again, inspiring someone else and, and giving someone else the knowledge that they need to in turn move up in the field themselves, too. So it's all just kind of this chain that filters down. Um, you just have to kind of gain the confidence to be willing to be part of it. And one thing you shared with me pre-interview that I'm extremely jealous of is you shared that essentially social media doesn't run your life. You live a successful life without having a social media life. I think that's a story that needs to be told more because I think those stories obviously aren't being amplified because they're not on social. <laughs> Can you share with us your point of view, especially, you know, for the Gen Z generation coming up right now that feels like they have to be on TikTok, they have to be on all these things in order to be relevant. What is your perspective and what does success mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, you know, my life over the last five years or so has been really crazy. Um, You know, my whole journey from, from NASA and traveling to all these places and meeting all these people, you know, it can get very overwhelming at times, I'll say. And so for me, it's always been very important to kind of live in the moment and take the, that time to really appreciate just kind of where you are in your journey and where you want to go and, and set those goals for yourself. And for me, I think, you know, social media is difficult because in those moments that you have of boredom when you're just sitting on a plane or in a train or in a car, you know, your immediate kind of inclination is just to go on social media and post something or, or look at other people's posts. And the problem is that takes away your opportunity to live in the moment and to appreciate your journey. And so, you know, social media for me has never been something that I've been inclined to make a primary part of my presentation, of my research. I think there are other ways that I'm able to get my work out there. And in the end, for me, it's never been really about the publicity. I'm not, you know, seeing my face on something doesn't really give me as much joy as, um, you know, seeing actually a viable impact that I'm making with my work. And I recognize that that's different for everyone. And some people, you know, social media is great for validation. And if that's the way that you're going to gain the confidence, then that's perfect. You know, you have to do what works for you. But for me, what has worked is just kind of living in the moment, taking those experiences and, and really just appreciating where I am and the ultimate goal of my work in the end. This may seem like an obvious answer, but I want to ask the question anyway, because I think that emotionally it doesn't feel obvious for us anymore as a culture. Do you confidently believe that we all can be successful without social media? I would say um, it depends what your definition of success is. I believe I found success um, through the work that I've done um, without social media, just in the sense that, uh, you know, I have directly made an impact in the field of environmental sciences and, and through the connections that I've made at conferences. That being said, if your definition of success um, does necessarily involve making those really large scale connections with, with broad ranges of people, and, and that's how you're going to reach your goal, um, then yes, I think social media can really be a tool for good. And it has been a tool for good in terms of 
uniting people and, and most importantly, giving those a voice who historically have not been given that voice or, or that megaphone. But, you know, I think it's silly to think that people should just go to social media because they think that'll that'll help them be more successful or, or more popular because, you know, the chances of that actually happening are, are unfortunately pretty low unless you know how to kind of le- leverage your network in that way. Uh, or so game a, the system. A, exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, I just yeah. love it. I wanted to ask that because I think it's unfortunate how people feel a sense of hopelessness if Mm -hmm. they don't want to be online and they feel like they have to be. So I think in so many ways, including the work that you're doing in tech, but also being an example of I can live a successful, impactful life and not just be a slave to social media. Like, I think that's a message that has to get out there because I think a lot of people are feeling very hopeless about the matter. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So thank you. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite tool? Is it like hardware, software, mobile app? Which one is your favorite? Sure. Um, So my favorite tool is definitely a software tool. It's a tool called Google Earth Engine. Um, And just kind of for backgrounds about the tool. So most of you are probably familiar with Google Earth. Um, Most of you see it on Google Maps if you go to the satellite view. Um, But what Google Earth Engine enables you to do is actually kind of go to the back end of Google Earth and actually see and analyze all of the satellite imagery from space that's used to create those images that you see on your phone or, or on your computer when you look at Earth and, and all of its land masses. So using Google Earth Engine, we're able to access you know, hundreds and hundreds of different data sets from um, companies around the world and also government agencies like NASA or the European Space Agency, for example. Um, and then what you can do is actually take those data and then process it just in the cloud. All of those data are, are uh, stored on Google servers um, using JavaScript coding, which is a pretty simple interface I still am convinced anyone can learn it. I first learned how to use Google Earth Engine when I had never had any exposure to coding before. Um, So Google Earth Engine was kind of where it all started for me. So I think there's kind of a lot of nostalgia um, that I have with the tool too, because that really did get me interested in remote sensing in general. But I think Google Earth Engine in general has just kind of opened up my world in the sense that we're able to do these global scale analyses in a way that we just have never have been able to before. We just had one of the engineers from Google Earth on. So that is pretty awesome. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. That's so Um, cool. Do you mind if I ask their name? Is it Rebecca Moore by any chance? (gasps) Yeah, she's in my idol forever. I'm I'm constantly in awe. Wait a second. She is? Yeah, so she was the one who really helped me get started with that project that I'm I'm going to Europe for for a couple of weeks. Okay, because um, I would yeah, say I would work awesome. out connecting you two if you didn't know her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. She's um, she's a, a, an awesome contact. I feel like she's a hippie technologist. Like she uses <laughs> yeah. she utilizes technology to be a hippie, a successful hippie. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, she she has this great quote. Um, you know, environmental scientists used to sit in trees, now they sit in front of Google Earth. Um, that's I feel like kind of an iconic Rebecca Moore quote, but I think that really encompasses kind of her attitude towards Google Earth and, and Earth Engine. If there was a dream that you had, uh, something that you wish you could achieve, what is that dream? And then what's blocking you from having that today? I have a lot of dreams, actually. Um, I love that. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you two, I guess. 
Okay. So my first dream and the dream that I'm really working towards right now with the Clouds of Classroom project is for every kid around the world to be able to understand what climate change is. And not only that, feel like they can personally make a difference, um, really no matter how small, um, in their own communities towards contributing to its elimination. And we're trying to do, you know, what we're trying to do with the Clouds of Classroom project is to give them different tools that they might not be used to. It's not a news article, it's not a textbook, so that they're able to visualize it in a more effective way and feel like they actually tangibly understand how climate change is making an impact today in different communities around the world, even if its impacts aren't so obvious in their own community. That's definitely my first dream, and it's a dream that I've been working towards for a while. And, and I think we're certainly getting there, not just with this project, but with other global climate change education projects around the world. I think this next generation and my current generation, too, really is knowledgeable about the climate crisis and really has been given the tools and is making the tools for themselves to solve it. That's, I think, my first dream. So there's no block in your first dream because you're you're going after it, right? Or am I missing anything? <laughs> so of course, of course, there are blockages to to every dream. You know, uh, if there if there wasn't an obstacle, it probably would have already been achieved. I think one of the biggest inequities I see in the world is the inequity of connectivity. Um, so we see communities across the world, especially in the global South, that simply don't have the access to resources that they need to understand these sorts of global crises. And in that case, how can we expect them to want to be educated about climate change or need to be educated about a global crisis when there are so many more immediate challenges that we need to address first? So it's a pretty big obstacle, to be honest. But in order for them to, to really get involved in these sorts of programs, um, there are major steps that need to be taken um, to eliminate these inequities and make sure that um, resource distribution, even Internet access, is distributed in an equitable way um, across the world. And your second dream? Uh, so throughout my time at NASA, I've worked um, pretty heavily in remote sensing-based analysis of ecosystems. So I've worked uh, specifically in mangrove ecosystems, which are kind of like tropical wetlands. You can see them in the Everglades, for example, and they're one of Earth's most valuable ecosystems in terms of the amount of carbon that they're able to store and also the amount of ecosystem services that they're able to give to communities around the world. I'm moving slightly into more terrestrial forests now, things like rainforests. But my dream is to have a monitoring program where we're able to essentially analyze all changes across the world in terms of deforestation, in terms of land use, in terms of um, urbanization. And we can see all of that literally in real time. And it's done in a way for anyone, regardless of their backgrounds um, in remote sensing and, and in ecology, to be able to you know, go on this global map and actually see, see those changes occurring. Um, and I think this sort of global monitoring program is definitely something that people are already reaching towards. All you know, scientists around the world, like myself, are working different aspects, individual aspects of the earth system. You know, I'm working solely on the deforestation side. Other people are working solely on the urbanization side. But I think it would be really cool if we could actually combine all of those aspects together and work together to make you know, sort of a global portal where anyone is able to go to see these changes for themselves. Um, in terms of obstacles, that is a lot of data, um, and we need a lot of high-resolution data, too. Um, but the great news is I'm actually pretty optimistic about this goal, um, just because I think the data revolution is, is really outstanding, especially in the field of remote sensing. We have so many, you know, even small companies coming up, things like CubeSats, SmallSats across the world that are really pushing these uh, sorts of high-resolution data sets uh, to get out there and, and to get out there with minimal cost. Um, so we're definitely getting there. Listening to you speak, I feel like your your hope, <laughs> you're our future leader. 
You're our, our, if not even just you're a leader today and you're our future mentor. What does it look like for us to elevate one another? Because one thing in our community is that we want to continue to have more and more, you know, women at the top in places of leadership to reach out their hand and pull the rest of us up. So what does that look like? How do we be you and who helped you be you <laughs> along the way? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, so I'll give you two excellent mentorship examples. So my primary mentor right now is someone named Dr. Lola Fatoyenbo, and I would definitely recommend uh, you should host her on, on this podcast too. She's amazing. Down. So so she was the one who, when I was 14 years old and first coming into NASA, um, she was the one who took that initial chance on me and said, you know, you don't know anything about remote sensing. You've never really heard of a mangrove before, but come in, you can help us and, and you can eventually start your own projects. And so Lola is just incredible because, you know, I can give her the craziest ideas in the world and she'll say, okay, you know, go do it. Here are the resources that I have. Here are the resources that you have and, and let's pull them and, and let's actually make that change in, in whatever way you want. And she's also been so instrumental too, in terms of um, you know, doing something that I think isn't uh, isn't so obvious for mentors, and that's being flexible and being okay with my exploring other interests within the field of Earth systems and even completely outside as well. She's been encouraging me throughout my time at college to, you know, try out different subjects, try out different mentors and, and speak to different professors out at Stanford, um, you know, not involved with NASA at all. And I think that's such a valuable thing for a mentor to be able to do, to recognize that in order for your mentee to grow, they also have to have those other experiences, which they can in turn bring back and, and enrich their work um, with the mentor themselves. So, you know, I, I can't say enough about Lola. She's, she's incredible. And then I'll also bring up, you know, another mentor that I've had really since the beginning, um, and that's um, Dr. David Lagomasino, who's now a professor at East Carolina University. Um, and David is, is also amazing, um, mostly, you know, because he was the one who, from the very beginning, sat down with me for just hours and hours and hours, you know, every single week. He actually drove me back and forth from the main gate at, at Goddard Space Flight Center because I couldn't drive yet um, for several years. And so, you know, he was always the one kind of doing the, the brunt work in terms of getting me up to speed with Google Earth Engine and, and coding and was just, you know, infinitely patient with all of my mistakes that I made along the way. And still, despite all of that, believing that I could accomplish the the projects and the challenges that I, I sought to do. And I'm still working with, with David as well on several projects. So both of these people have been so instrumental. And, you know, what I would say in terms of trying to, you know, encourage mentorship and encourage people to seek out mentorship, I think, you know, it's difficult to go out looking for a mentor. I don't think most, you know, successful mentor-mentee relationships come from saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to go through this list of people, go through like a list of, of professors and say, okay, I wish they were, they were the mentor. Instead, it should be organic. It should be, you know, what do I want to study? What do I get excited about? Who are people who I already know, um, who I can look up to and, and who have believed in me along the way? So I think that's really how it gets started. I love that. A couple last questions. Do you have a favorite book? Could be personal or professional. That that is the most impossible question of all. Um, so I'll I'll tell you a quick story actually. Um, so my favorite book I think is I Am Malala. It's Malala Yousafzai's um, autobiography. Um, I actually ended up reading it seven times in a row um, in seventh grade. It was just you know finished turn back to the beginning, finished turn back to the beginning, um, and I developed um, I would say probably an obsession um, with just you know making a difference in the world. I just like wanted to make the impact in the world that Malala and, and other figures like her. 
um, have had. And, you know, I would sit every night and, and try and think, you know, what what is going to be, you know, my field. Um, I love the field of girls education, which is on the field that she's in. I love the field of climate change. And, and I wanted to see, you know, where is it that I'm going to kind of find my, my niche and, and make my mark? Um, and ultimately, you know, what I learned from that whole experience um, is, you know, you can't just kind of pick a general field that you want to make a difference in. It's got to be, you know, what are you passionate about? And from there, what's the difference I can make within that subject? For me, that subject happened to be environmental science. So, you know, because I went into a field that I loved and that I would spend, you know, millions and millions of hours in, that's when I got to to the world of making a difference in the field. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that book was quite influential for me um, for starting out that train of thought and, and for getting there for myself. And where can people connect with you? So you can connect with me. I really encourage you to just send me an email. So my email is lizagold at stanford.edu. I'm sure it can be sent out after the um, show. And yeah, I, I think for me, actually cold emailing um, professors and cold emailing um, people at NASA and heads of initiatives has been one of my most successful ways of spreading projects. So just go for it. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be me. Email someone who you look up to and then see what comes out of it. So definitely a big, big proponent of that. And can you spell your email for everybody listening? Sure. Um, it's L-I-Z-A-G-O-L-D at Stanford, S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D dot E-D-U. Thank you so much, Liza, for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. This has been amazing. You've definitely inspired me. I think you're going to inspire so many people in the future, and you've inspired so many people in the past. You're truly extraordinary, absolutely envious of your detached way of living from social. <laughs> I'm like a closet introvert over here. So uh, I just, I'm so grateful to have had you on the show to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women around the world. Be sure to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye everyone. Hi, everyone. My name is Liza Goldberg. I'm a student at Stanford University and a research scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And at NASA, I use satellites to monitor global changes in tropical forests. I'm based in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.